you know, the pleasures became much clearer. Hi, I'm Daryl. And I'm Petros. And welcome to episode two, season two of Getting Defoe You, where from Heaven's Gate to the present day, join us as we get to know Willem Defoe in this dedicated Defoe podcast. So, after a hot start for season two, I think, and 2002 being established as the greatest cinematic year of all time, <laughs> go back and listen to the season opener, if that one doesn't make sense. Here we are, moving on from what many people would consider another banger as well. Banger the banger, coming out the gates real hot this season. Yeah, a couple of, hey, you're not getting one walls, you're getting two two sausages in your bap this season, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you're getting a couple of uh, King Charles's fingers right right, right in your face, right hey. up front. Yeah, this, um, we're, we're here talking about a first outing of a... Uh, a contentious director for for us too because mm. we've we we fall two sides of 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 the church on this and that director is the one and only wes anderson of his 2014 film the grand budapest hotel where we are joined by a man who's bloody not just not just a knowledgeable film critic and journalist but mm-hmm. he's written a bloody book that mentions the Grand Budapest Hotel. So, yeah, Charles Bromesco is joining us on this episode for a, for a fun old chat, Daryl. What, what did we talk about on this one? Well, Grand Budapest Hotel is on the bloody front cover of his book, no less. But yeah, like I say, a bit of a... Um, the first... Obviously, we won't get too much into it. You know, we'll let you dive into the episode, but the first disagreement of the season this early in. Ho-ho, drama, intrigue, hooks. <laughs> Naturally, we're talking about all of the use of colour in this movie and why it is, in fact, my dog's favourite film. The Wes Anderson haters in the world and, you know, where people can line the mixed opinion of the man. And, and obviously, we're here to talk about Willem Dafoe and how he channels the silent film stars in his villainous portrayal, his villainous leather-bound portrayal in this one as well. So, a lot Season of ground covered. getting sexy. Season two is getting sexy, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We got we got leather clad daddies abound. The Defoe daddies have got something for you here on the Defoe commotion train. We've we've <laughs> we've ditched our conductor's hats and we put on a couple of leather caps because we are your Defoe daddies taking you on this wild ride. <laughs> the conductor's been a naughty boy, and we'll be leading us <laughs> into the next station. Christ, yes. I've now got the image of uh, Thomas the Tank Engine styled train, but like the fat controller's got him on a lead <laughs> Jesus Christ Jesus uh, if, if Thomas the Tank Engine only listened to the YMCA uh, that's the vibe we're going for this season apparently but um, if you want more of those sweet sweet sexy vibes we're on all the socials uh, Petros where can the listeners find us oh if you want to be a friend of the show and get involved with everything we're doing you can find us on Twitter Instagram and TikTok all at Pod. or if you want to be a best friend you can drop us an email which is at DefoeUPod at gmail.com and if you want to be the, the bestest of friends ever you can rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you're listening right now absolutely so without further ado let's get into the second episode of the season it's the grand budapest hotel we'll see you on the other side enjoy the episode check in soon
Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. So this week, we check in to the 2014 comedy drama The Grand Budapest Hotel. We see Defoe starring as J.G. Jopling, a ruthless hitman hunting down a hotel concierge and his protégé. Helping us get to know Defoe a little better this week to see if this hotel is giving us sweet dreams or if this grand is just plain bland. Is critic and author of Colours of Film, The Story of Cinema in 50 Palettes. It's Charles Romesco. Charles, thank you so much for joining how the devil are you doing today? Hello, it's it's very nice to be on, and I'm doing quite well. This is uh today is my first day off in multiple weeks. I've just gotten back from the film festival in Toronto, and so uh, I'm in a very relaxed place, which is a, a drastic departure from my very frazzled state over the past few weeks. Nice, <laughs> nice. The 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 full festival that doesn't have like a bevy of. Willem Dafoe. There's one Willem Dafoe, right? Gonzo girl played. Was that? I'm afraid that? that I missed that one. But let's see. He's a uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it was a very Dafoe light festival. Yeah. Sad, sad. You hate to see it. When we came off Venice, which was like, I think we got a triple bill of Defoe, which like, for, I think like people were like a rave of the festival, poor things. And then Pet Shop Boys, people were like really good. And then I think the third film, I don't even know the title of people. Right. Going, Is Willem Dafoe <laughs> in a movie about the Pet Shop Boys that I have not yet heard of? No, I think it's just called Pet Shop Boys. I, I, I hope it's. I hope it's got Willem Dafoe strut into West End Girl though. Like, <laughs> a lot of confusion. People are going to come in and they're going to leave really angry and they're going to feel. <laughs> I'm feeling angry already. Just if if I'm not going to get this strutting Dafoe, this is what I play for. But it's good. Love to have you in this relaxed state. Hopefully, we can keep it there and not go too far off the old ski slope, so to speak. Wink, wink. Foreshadowing of content very to come. Very on trend. Yeah. <laughs> we are at the pinnacle of ski jump humor on this uh, on this podcast. This is what we're doing in season two. Ski jump humor coming back in a real big way for all our Winter Olympics fans out there. But the uh, snow and all good things aside, we're always keen to know, especially with new guests to the podcast as well. Charles Romasco, how well do you know the man we call Willem Dafoe? What is your Dafoe history? So by that we think... Uh, what is your first Defoe film? Do you know how many you've seen? Uh, what are your thoughts on the man we've based the next five years of our lives around? He's, he's one of the best we've got, you know, in, in his or in any generation. He's a, a singular talent who is, I think, one in a very small class that could sustain a project like this. I think, like, uh, I'm currently 30 years old, and I believe, like, a lot of the people in my general age bracket, I first saw Willem Dafoe in the Spider-Man movies, which, when you go back, you you see that he's really put, like, a borderline Shakespearean performance in this project where he absolutely did not have to bring it that hard. He could have showed up and cashed the check and walked away, but he, like, brought such conviction and such gravitas to this role, which, like, helped seal and like that's a really good movie and he's such a part of why like every aspect of it that could have gotten away with being kind of middling is really like at peak functionality i think of like singing in the rain the same way where like everybody was just at the top of their game that day on yeah. set yeah uh, and so yeah i saw him and like you know he's got that incredible face that as green goblin he uses to great effect you know his eyes bugging out and his like kind of shark like teeth and I think when you're a kid, that like really stays in your head. Uh, and so then when you see him in what is such a wide variety of roles, it is always, you know, you don't realize how many dimensions there are to him mm -hmm. 
until you've seen them in those. Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, it's a rewarding thing. He's like, he's a good actor to watch more of his work because like the first time you see him as like a sexually viable character, the first time you see him as like a comedic character, you're like, this guy can do anything. It's unbelievable. Well, well yeah, like to like, especially when it comes to like Wes Anson, I know that on a film we'll get to eventually, but The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, like just, I think for a lot of people that would have been their first look at Defoe the comedian, right? And like the fact yeah. that he was supposed to have a small role in that and then like he's just got that face that warrants itself to like a nice whip pan just for a reaction shot of him looking like perturbed like steve not picking him or something like that he's like in that movie he has this kind of boyish quality to him which is just crazy to witness first off that deep into his career because he'd been acting since what like the 80s and even then he seems like you know like a kind of hurt kid which is the role that he plays on the submarine he's kind of the surrogate child figure jealous of owen wilson and when you compare that even yeah to the other things especially the one we're going to talk about today which is this really like satanic embodiment of evil what a what a guy uh he's he's got range for days yeah it definitely does and i think i feel like we have to point out at this point it's basically getting to foe you bingo when someone says their first movie was spider-man sure I think we mentioned it in a previous episode, but if someone comes on the podcast and says that they f- their first film was not Spider-Man, then we will kick them off. <laughs> when I was eight years old and I saw Wild at Heart, I knew <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that does kind of say something, though. He does mostly grown-up movies. He's not really like a... Uh, I, I can't think of that many family movies he's done aside from the Spider-Mans. And Togo. He did like a, a like a Disney... Oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. sledding movie, which like... <laughs> it's just like, okay, okay, this that's is... Like, that's the revisionist history corrective to Balto, right? Because Balto was, was jacking swag from Togo. Togo really did all the legwork on that stupid Iditarod thing. And then, what, Balto jumped in at the last minute to get credit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I learned about this only recently when I was. <laughs> I wrote about how much I like the movie Balto, and like there is a real Balto counter contingent out there that are just like they're they're searching the term Balto day in and day out and just spreading the truth. <laughs> the Togo army. Yeah, absolutely. Togo's got shooters. <laughs> like those those same guys who anytime the poltergeist is mentioned, they'll be like, well, actually, Toby Hooper did direct it. It wasn't Steven Spielberg, despite what you say. Yeah, this is this is a form of being a truther, although I think in some respects <laughs> this is about being as actual and accurate. <laughs> not, not Hollywood speculation. Yeah. <laughs> we're all about our Defoe truth on this podcast. We're, we're going to spearhead as a recently appointed Defoe daddy's trademark pending, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is welcome to be a daddy. You know, don't, it's, it's not it's a... It's an inclusive term, yeah. It's possibly the most inclusive term in podcasting. I'm going to make a big claim <laughs> going into season two. Gonna be, uh, we're seven minutes in. So, with, with that said, we're here to obviously talk about the Grand Budapest Hotel today from 2014. So it is time to hand over to Petros for this week's the facts and the figures. Oh, have I got some the facts and the figures for you, ladies and gentlemen? This film is directed by Wes Anderson, written by Wes Anderson, with a story by Wes Anderson and Hugo Guinness. The film stars Ralph Rafe Fiennes. Let's call the whole thing off. Tony Revolori, Saoirse Ronan, Adrian Brody, F. Murray Abraham, Tilda Swinton, Jude Law, and a whole host of other Wes Anderson regulars and our very own knuckle duster daddy willem defoe who has amazing score by alexander desplat and cinematography from a to live and die in a la alum robert yeoman who uh, was the dop for that amazing 
Car Chase Daryl, which we covered in season one. Oh, boy, uh, yes. The, the film premiered at the 64th Berlin International Film Festival on February 6th. 2014 before getting a wide cinema release in the uk and us on the 7th of march of the same year the budget for this movie was 25 million dollars and the worldwide box office is 127 million nine hundred and thirty six thousand nine hundred and forty one dollars making it the 49th highest grossing movie of 2014 sandwiched between the monkey king havoc in heaven's palace at 48 i want to see that movie are just on that title alone one movie that was the title of one movie so let's you could, you could say colon out loud, say that title again, and where the colon is. The Monkey King, colon, Havoc okay. in Heaven's Palace. That was that was 48 for that year. Yeah. <laughs> and, 40, and, and 50 of that year was Dumb and Dumber 2. 2014, what a time to be alive. The film was nominated for nine Academy Awards and took home four awards. It has an IMDb rating of 8.1 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes, 92. Two based on 318 reviews, an audience score of 86%, with over 50,000 ratings. And the critic consensus is typically stylish but deceptively thoughtful. The Grand Budapest Hotel finds Wes Anderson once again using ornate visual environments to explore deeply emotional ideas. Our first Defoe sighting in this film is at 25 minutes and 40 seconds in a wide shot as we see the attendance of Madame D's will reading. And our first line is 39 minutes and 27 seconds when Willem Dafoe delivers, I'm looking for Serge X, a young man in our service of the employ- of my employer, the family de goffs and taxis of Schloss Lutz, as he tries to track down Serge as he's pressing upon his dear sister. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the defax and the defigures. Incredible stuff, as always. So the synopsis for Grand Budapest Hotel. He tells the story of Gustav H., the concierge of the titular European ski resort, who, along with his protégé Zero, find themselves on the run following the mysterious death of one of his many elderly lovers. So, for yourself, Charles, the Grand, Budap- the Grand Budapest Hotel, I should say, do you recall for the first time... You saw this and uh, what your first impressions were at the time as well. Yes, I saw this back when I was living in New Orleans, when I was a uh, student at what you would call university. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we just referred to as college at a wonderful one screen movie theater, uh, very old, called The Britannia, uh, where they did for the release of this a big Wes Anderson series and showing Grand Budapest was part of that i believe and i thought it was terrific i wrote a review for the university paper which is now mercifully not available to read online (laughs) real solid i have to thank them for that um but no, I, I absolutely loved it. It is, to this day, my favorite Wes Anderson movie. It's a very significant movie, both for, for me and for Wes Anderson as an artist, I think. It was uh, really, if you look at the trajectory of his career, this is his first 
gigantic ensemble movie. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom somewhat fits that mold, but this is the first one that he's like trying to cram in 30 characters, you know, something like that. And Willem Dafoe always finds a place in those schematics. We see him in Asteroid City this past summer doing, you know, a very small but very significant role in that same way. And uh, this was also, I believe to this day, Wes Anderson's biggest hit. This made really a shocking amount of money for for being the movie that it is, for catering to tastes as particular as it does, for being as, you know, sort of he makes very uh, particular movies and so I, I i like this you know i think it's a good way to read wes's career and especially for my most recent book which was called uh colors of film the story of cinnamon's 50 pals as you mentioned grand budapest hotel is the uh image on the cover mm-hmm the beautiful exterior of the facade of the Grand Budapest, which that was when I was speaking with the publisher, one of the first ones that we talked about. There was a, I pitched pretty much everything in there, except for a very small handful of the publisher, all of which I was totally on board with. They wanted to do Spirited Away, Amelie, Schindler's List, and Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, all of which I thought, you know, were very productive, fruitful films to look at through this lens. Uh, but Grand Budapest especially, because color is uh, such a big part of the way that Wes Anderson conveys meaning, that uh, sure. style is substance in his films, and you can see that most, you know, legibly through color, uh, as the, you know, beautiful pinks and oranges of the hotel as uh, Europe slides into fascism and the austerity under nazi rule represented by the zz's i believe uh that you know everything becomes gray and black and dark brown and it, it becomes much drearier looking as life itself becomes drearier uh in in europe the, the, i was going to pick up on that like gray to black you have in the film so like when you when you're first introduced to the police they're all in like the gray and it's like just that subtle thing of color to just be like and now they're in black it's like now they're the worst. It's almost like because they look drab. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that—that's what's so fascinating in this. Even like almost like the absence of color and like just using the grays and the blacks, like the, the those drab colors. Even that has significance to the plot of this film. I find is like yeah, fascinating and like a thematic cool. just shift. Fashion and fascism going uh, hand in hand. <laughs> Fashion, fash, baby. That's what we yeah, live for. Course. <laughs> so, I, mean, I, I think with a lot of Wes Anderson's you can't really end up talking about them without discussing the colour of it to some aspect and sort of what I found and I, this is probably something we'll get into in this episode and over the course of the various Andersons that we cover I haven't always been the biggest fan of Wes Anderson I will admit that he's always been someone that and I know I've, I've said this to sort of Petros in like off record and stuff he's always been one of these people that I don't hate anything that he does don't get me wrong I don't think he's a bad director by any stretch of the imagination I don't think he's a bad writer it's just been a personal thing when I've always kind of struggled to connect with the work a little bit and it's been uh, and I think taking exactly what you said there Charles like style is substance sometimes for me it, it verges a little more to style over substance but I will say like as much as I appreciate all the color work and the thematic resonance of the colors, I watched this on Blu-ray last night, and my dog fucking loved the colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that uh, totally being brought in. It's it's very visual that way. I bet your dog also loved the scene when Willem Dafoe throws a cat out of a window as well. Like, <laughs> yes, come on, fuck up those cats. <laughs> my, my, my German shepherd was on his hind legs last night, just going howling. <laughs> <laughs> he was finally seen in in a in cinema, but but I think now, if nothing else, if ever I need to put something on in the background, because uh, I, I my dog's a bit of an overreactive dog sometimes, but he likes seeing like movement and colours on TV. If it's not bluey, 
then it's <laughs> I, he is my son. Um, <laughs> if it's not Bluey, it's going to be a Wes Anderson film. So plus, I mean, all, all the yodeling probably soothes the nerves of the dog. Yeah, it really breaches into those shepherd instincts. I think. Yeah. Just don't show your dog earlier Wes Anderson films like uh, Life of <laughs> with Steve Sisu, I think, has got a dog hit with a, a newspaper. Uh, a dog dies in Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, there's, a, there's an often cited rumour that Isle of Dogs is just Wes Anderson's apology for all the dogs he's either killed or... Royal Tenenbaums as yeah. well. <laughs> the dog gets it in that. Yeah, it's kind of like... It's like the Isle of Dogs is just him saying, sorry, guys, I've been cruel to the dogs. I've, I've played a cheap trick. I've done, I've done, I've done dog murder to get you in the oh, fields. You'll have to excuse my pro-dog ignorance of Anderson films. Is this a thing? Is Wes Anderson like anti-hound? Is that what I'm hearing here? I think, you know, they, uh, they're... they're uh man's best friend they have to they sustain a lot of pain in the same way that humans do in these movies uh <laughs> yeah i don't know in isle of dogs it's uh that's the whole thing oh god so wes anderson is putting dogs through the ringer for the art oh, wes i want to like you man <laughs> i really i really want to i think this was the first time i'd watched this again since it came out i didn't see it at the cinema i think i just remember seeing like a trailer for it it was like when it probably would have been probably 2014, about the time the Blu-ray came out, I thought, I like colours. I'm a simple man in his early 20s. <laughs> uh, went out and got the Blu-ray. That's all it took for me. So would 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 you say this would be like the most colourful of, sort of Wes Anderson's efforts? Would this be the most conscious project of his from a colour basis? Yeah, I think uh, there, there's a reason, you know, in selecting the movies, I knew I had to restrict myself to uh, at the very least one per director. You know, I didn't want to double up. And so with Wes Anderson in particular, I was like, all right, a choice has to be made. And Grand Budapest definitely felt like the most well-suited to the premise of the book, I think. <clears throat> He's someone who uses form in a very forward way you know he definitely wants you to appreciate the craft of what he's doing and i think in grand budapest there is there are real ideas to that as well more than uh being able to you know marvel at his craft is that that's really integral to the the whole thematic uh gestalt of the whole thing and so yeah i mean i i, I love this movie very deeply it has something for everybody it has a chase scene it has leia sidhu in a french maid's outfit it has <laughs> humor and danger and I, uh, I love it very much yeah it's a very there's a big sort of element of like comedy and adventure in this as well which i think i don't recall sort of how i sort of thought of my first viewing as much but there's lots of like separate elements in this that i certainly enjoyed and it's i, I will say in terms of like the characterization especially with uh ralph find as well there's a lot of dialogue in this that I found was like very funny. Mm. There's there's a line where, and obviously it becomes clear his character sort of a Monsoir, and I, and I think, and I, I know it's not an English word, but I need to bring Monsoir into my into my um, <laughs> vocabulary a little I bit more. I would would judge you for that. That's a very useful word. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to get into the hotel business. Maybe just pop into like a premiere in of the hotels are available and just be like Monsoir Lenny Henry. Is this where you've been <laughs> sleeping? <laughs> all this time obviously it becomes apparent in his character that he loves an older lady and then he says something about he sort of compares them to stakes it's like she was dynamite in the sack when you're young it's all fillet steak but as the years go on you have to move on to the cheaper cuts i like those more flavorful 
I love him. He's a he's he's a very sort of ethical cad. You know, he he likes to sleep around and he likes to you know make the acquaintance of ladies, but he always does so in a very sort of gentlemanly way. I don't know. I like him. I feel like it's almost like he's a, he's the consummate professional, right? In the fact that like that is a part of his job. He's there of serving the 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 clientele, whether that is kind of making sure they have all their wants and needs fulfilled, like kind of with their stay, and if that means hopping into bed with them, so be it like i will i will do what needs to be done and what i found interesting on like the kind of rewatch of this because yeah i watched this i watched this on a double date actually uh, the day of release uh, but uh on this rewatch i was like 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 many films this is a film about filmmaking right and you can always look at that thing of like the gustav h as being like the wes anderson he's there like moving people and making sure everything is in its place and watching the uh, criterion like special features on this like you actually see Wes Anderson when he's putting together scenes physically like moving people being like no your body must be at this angle no let's get rid of this cigarette you don't need that we need this and it's like when you see those montages of like uh, Gustav H and Zero kind of moving the chairs around and getting everything in order it's like well he is a direct he is directing this hotel in the way that Wes Anderson does and you can almost look at that thing of like sleeping with the older ladies is like well, sometimes you got to get that cash somehow. So it's almost like that thing of like, you got to sometimes schmooze the producers. Do you know what I mean? You got you got to get into bed with these people to get the money for your movie to be made. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, um, I, I think a lot about watching Grand Budapest Hotel, which is literally a, a movie about the managerial mindset is about someone who is overseeing a large operation. And the commercial that Wes Anderson did for American Express, which is about directing a movie, I don't know if this played a lot in the UK or if this was just in America, but I would recommend you both watch this after we're finished recording. It's delightful. He, Wes Anderson plays himself and he is explaining in these like very snappy rolling cuts uh, about how to direct a movie and, and why, you know, his American Express card is integral to that. And it is all about this kind of pocket watch timing and comedic interlocking physical psych gags on the screen. And yeah, there's a really direct line to be drawn from that to Grand Budapest Hotel, which is also about chaos being knit into choreographed order. Once I kind of, that clicked in my head, I was like kind of watching the film through that through that lens as well and like how, how how this film is almost about the idea of him saying and the way that Gustav H is like and we see it with like when Jason Schwartzman in the 1960s timeline is kind of like this it's doing the same role but he's just smoking a cigarette and you've you've got boy with apple behind him kind of like this sought after priceless painting is just like they're probably being weathered for, for all the cigarettes that Jason Schwartzman's character is smoking and it's like it's like Wes Anderson's treatise on what he is doing as a director as well it's like I feel he, in his eyes he he is creating art and like it feels like maybe an arrogant thing for him to say as a director but it's like I want to do something that is in the tradition of the old way and like I think Gustav H has a line to that effect is like I do like uh, I might seem a bit old-fashioned or like I think someone says that about him zero may and um it's like Wes Anderson almost saying that to the audience it's like especially when you look at 2014 I think like the biggest movies were like The Hobbit and Guardians of the Galaxy and it's like this isn't very in vogue right for 2014 I don't think any of his films very much have been in vogue with the times Wes Anderson seems to be the only director I can think of especially now who seems to be it doesn't it was never made a film that feels like it's a for them movie 
Do you know what I mean? Even like, I guess he's kind of done that. I don't know. Even the ads you're talking about, like I remember seeing it, there was a H&M Christmas advert he did. It very much felt like a, yeah. a, a for me, it was still for me. Do you know what I mean? It was like, you get me, you get you get what I do. It's like this film, it's Wes Anderson telling a story he wants to tell. It's, uh, it's a very interesting time to be having this conversation as well as he is on the eve of releasing his uh, productions for Netflix, which yeah. I that is the ultimate test of someone's ability to retain their sense of individual artistry in the face of, you know, other industry forces, because mm-hmm. I've seen too many great directors go to Netflix and inexplicably just start making the worst work of their lives. And from what I've heard, that is certainly not the case with the Henry Sugar adaptations that are coming up. But uh, it is definitely, you know, a testament to how firm and established he is in his own style if he can get in there and continue just doing his thing yeah definitely i mean like i said i i always sort of appreciate just how i think individually in individual how wes anderson he is is definitely <laughs> the word i was going for there i think i always find with wes anderson like obviously he has such incredible support from the people who love his work but then it seems to me that I almost have this kind of outside looking in perspective, like I'm watching the Wes Anderson family around the Christmas tree and I and I, I just want to be by that log fire with the rest of them. But it's the cold and log chopping for me. But I always find that every film that he puts out is it's it's always the next most Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson that has ever Wes Anderson. And I'm like, how much more Wes Anderson can Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson? Um if you're keeping score along with how many times I Wes Anderson, <laughs> Wes Anderson. <laughs> And I know we sort of mentioned it earlier, and obviously it's one more get to down the line. I saw Asteroid City when that sort of came out this year, and I know they, they, there's like a, a sort of a similar narrative sort of device with it being like sort of the movie inside of the movie, the story inside of the story inside of the story. And to use those as kind of like direct comparisons, for me, it sort of worked a lot better in Grand Budapest. I felt that it was a lot easier to sort of follow because it's the present day teenager sort of reading the book of the Grand Budapest Hotel. And then we go back to, I think it's 1985. And then they're telling the story about in the 60s that goes to the, the, the 30s, or is it the 80s straight to the 30s? It's to the 60s, yeah, when, when Jude Law plays the young Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and then he's talking about that. And I, I, I found that a lot easier to sort of follow. And it, and it moves, and it, I will say this didn't feel like, what is it, 90 minutes, 100 minutes, this moving, including... Very fleet, very fleet movie. It's, it moves, like, very quickly. Yeah. And I think at, at points, and I, know, I think as, you, as as we discussed earlier, this is kind of where um, Wes Anderson is bringing more of a, a big cast kind of focus into his movies, something it's quite, you know, widely known for, especially now. And I, I felt it quite simple to sort of understand like right this is the character this is what they do it was also a lot of i recognize that face look at this person over here willem dafoe looks like an orc that guy's great jeff goldblum that's nice surprise matthew amorig looking like a scary uh, shadow man yeah <laughs> i was just glad to see that fisher stevens is playing in his own race do you know what i mean he, they, they, they could there could have been a version of this he's he's playing the older zero and it's like no 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 we've had short circuit don't do it fisher don't do it wes <laughs> i think i liked all the cast this is kind of like like a bit of a box of chocolates like everyone's got like a little different flavor to them which yeah. i thought was really nice i love uh when the the society of the crossed keys and they start calling all the other managers of the other hotels and you see it's like bob balaban and bill murray and uh um god uh yeah it's uh it's good stuff yeah and it, that that felt like wes anderson going how can i get like 
the biggest names to do the small like the the the, the smallest scene possible. Do you know what I mean? They're all like mm. fifteen seconds long, and I was watching the 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 director's commentary of it, which is Wes Anderson, Roman Coppola, who kind of like looms large over this film. I didn't kind of realize how like kind of hands on he was because he's kind of got one of these weird credits like just like special unit director which could be just like Wes just likes him hanging around do you know what I mean but then like there's the moments of I think it's when you know the prisoners all go into the Mendels and stuff like that which feel like the most Wes Anderson shot it's like he just left Roman Coppola to film that and like the the prison guard going through the country like the items to see it's like that's that was just like Roman Coppola just had the opportunity to just be like yeah, you, you go film that stuff, which feels like of a Wes Anderson film, you think those moments are the ones where Wes would be there kind of like with a fine tooth comb being looking over them, being like, no, the, the knife must be here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your hand must be here as you go into the chocolate box. Like. I know. Like, I watched this film and I was like, God, those Mendels look good. God, I really want one. Yeah, I would love one. I mean, they, I would eat even the one with the pickaxe inside of it. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll eat a pickaxe, baby. <laughs> I will break all my teeth for that sweet, sweet Mendo's. <laughs> I would risk it all <laughs> for a crumb of Mendel's. Yeah, Cortisano Chocolat. What? Oh. What do you, yes, what please. does that come under? Obviously, this film is nominated for like yeah, was nominated and won Academy Awards. What is what? What does? the pastries what would that come up would that be production design would that be like, what, what, what would that be like, it's, not, it's not hair make, hair and makeup and costuming is it like, <laughs> that, that falls under production design that that that's why it won baby like it's legitimate it's kind of like it's like yeah the, the hotel looks great like the, oh, the pastries like, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. the shoe buns <laughs> come on like the layered shoe buns give me some of that and the award for most delicious movie goes to oh man it 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 brought out the sweet tooth in me. I'll uh, I'll say that much. I wonder if it was all edible. That's kind of what I'm thinking. There there are, are a lot of good food scenes in the movies of Wes Anderson. My favorite is always in a uh, Isle of Dogs when they show you preparing the sushi and like you see mm. the from the point of view of the chef, his hands like hitting the fish and then dissecting the fish and all this stuff. It's really incredible. I love that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, it's, it's, it's interesting that like. He went back to stop motion. You mentioned Isle of Dogs. He went back to stop motion after this film because, like, Grand Budapest feels like a film that is like after he made Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's like his trial run to kind of be like, I am basically going to treat people like stop motion puppets, like now, like even more so. Like I, f- I feel like Fantastic Mr. Fox after that is when we kind of enter what I call Wes Landerson, like where it's like almost like this. <laughs> everything is it's it's almost like that kind of tarantino surrogate of like once he does kill bill it's like it feels different do you know what i mean like everything is heightened to like yeah uh, 11 and like wes anson kind of does that and it's like as much as i love moonrise kingdom he kind of perfects all of that stuff like using miniatures to great effect and kind of using like i don't know yeah everything like stuff feels stop motion even when it's not there's some the the meticulous detail to it is just nailed like within an inch of its life and it's kind of i don't know like yeah watch watching behind the scenes as well like it's fascinating to see just how how quickly it's all done as well like stuff that you feel like is i I imagine there are tons of takes for stuff but like just the precision like yeah like the fact that it's all i think 
there's animatics for all of his films, like storyboards throughout the wazoo and stuff like that. But just like watching those kind of camera movements when you get those like quick whips back and forth and like Robert Yeoman there, like Like, (laughs) going back and forth. He's like, go here, come here. Like it's amazing to see. Definitely. I mean, in terms of like all the, I guess the artistry that he puts in the movies as well, there's, I, I, I don't know if seamless is the right word, but I said definitely the use of, any green screen i find it's quite subtle in this you, you don't really know sometimes like you just know that you're looking at green screen and sometimes like but not to any like bad effect you know that you're kind of looking at miniatures and little figurines and sort of the way it comes in because i think you know for any misgivings i have with sort of wes anderson as a director i always enjoy like how effortless like the worlds he creates are always so unto their own and you know when we sort of look at this in a kind of a defovian lens if you will um where's landerson and defovian were coining turns left and right here when it a little (laughs) bit later into the film and it's that sled ski slope chase scene i was like this is fun this is a this is a nice bit of fun isn't it yeah and obviously, speaking of the foe as well, who plays our our assassin here, J.G. Jopling, I, I sort of wondered, like, with the foe in this, he's got, like, you know, the short, almost almost kind of military buzz cut hair. He's wearing that leather jacket. He's got, like, those heeled boots. And there is kind of, like, a gun to, like, the physical presentation of his face. And my sort of, like, note was, and I mentioned it earlier, like, he looks kind of, like, orcish here. Yeah, I think... Uh... This is a movie that's filled with references to silent film and uh, that sort of era of silent European film. And I think there's one shot in particular where he is not only made up, but lit to look exactly like Nosferatu. He looks <laughs> like Max Schreck. <laughs> he looks a little bit like that. And he also looks a lot like um, from Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. What's his name? The main guy. Conrad Veidt. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. As Cesare. Can, can we also coin the term Defos Ferratu? Defos Ferratu? Yeah. He's done it as well, right? He was in Shadow of the Vampire where he kind of, he played Max Shrek, who played Nosferatu as well. So like, it's like, and what, what I love about that, and it is a kind of Wes Anderson like thing in the fact that he's almost pulling upon these people not to do something different. And Defoe's a prime example of this. He's like, I need someone to play this villainous goon. It's mm-hmm. like, who have I got in my kind of like uh, toolbox? Well, I've got Willem Dafoe. Like, and, and the kind of counterpoint to that is like, you have, you have Jeff Goldblum. It's like, I kind of need this guy who is, can give this like verbose speech, like doing the will reading and stuff like that. And it's like, who can deliver this kind of, I don't know, what could be drab speech in like a kind of lyrical manner. And it's like, well, I've got, I've, just, I've got Jeff Goldblum there. Do you know what I mean? He's kind of like, <laughs> a lot of speaking man. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. You see, he's kind of like, well, oh, and then you have the, those amendments made. And it's like, oh, beautiful stuff. Like, and then it's like, I need, I need Willem Dafoe to just kind of, smash people in the face and kind of have yeah. this savage underbite and uh, I, I nearly leapt out of my like seat last night watching it when Willem Dafoe is the first character to get that kind of spotlighting effect on him when he like uh, Maybe the iris shot yeah which is also <laughs> a very silent film they want you looking right at him uh, <laughs> he's got those great brass knuckles he's uh, yeah. it's such a good look that moment you get as well when they're reading the wheel and he just kind of cracks the knuckles as well it's kind of like it's very like you know who that guy is immediately and like yeah as i said like you see him at kind of minute 25 and then you don't actually like 
hearing him speak for another, I don't say, yeah, like 12 minutes or so. But it's like, we know, I know who this guy is, like, immediately. I, uh, God, the, the scene where he is trailing Jeff Goldblum, you know, ready to mm. carry out the evil scheme of Adrian Brody and all this, that in terms of physical comedy, in terms of just the facility of editing and shot construction, just conveying this information and building tension that, that is also like classic silent film. But I just love that scene so much where yeah. the intervals of their chase keep getting shorter and tighter, which is like, it's such a simple building blocks thing of cinema, but he does it really well. And he reminds you of why these techniques have been in use now for like a hundred years. Mm-hmm. It's really great. And it, uh, just the, like the small comedy in that as well, like you, the the shot of him like slipping his boots off and stuff like that. It's just like, it's just like as, as tense as it is, it's kind of peppered with this, yeah, like small moment. And like you get that kind of hero shot almost of like when he steps out of that sliding door, kind of picks up the fingers, and it's almost like a look to camera, like look at me, I'm like I'm like the best Bond villain that's never been. <laughs> <laughs> Now you've said something, Petros. He would be a a... He's technically done it in a video game. That, oh. that, yeah, that we will, we will cover. True. true. At some point, yeah. <laughs> Spoilers, we're going to cover video games as well, people. Yeah, I, re- I will say I did enjoy sort of the, the museum stalking scene. And it's kind of like... Uh, who knew that the Defoe-Goldblum pairing was one that I didn't know that I needed prior to sort of yeah. like, like recording this episode as well. And I, I read this somewhere, because um, as much as a Goldblum fan as I am, and if it wasn't the fight, it might have been a Jeff Goldblum podcast. 24 karat Goldblum, does that exist? It should, right. if it doesn't. <laughs> Did Jeff Goldblum do like part of the commentary on the, the, the Blu-ray for this as well, or did I have a yeah. just have a nightmare? Yeah. yeah, no, it's him, Wes Anderson, and Roman Coppola just kind of, and they're not even speaking about like scene-specific stuff. Like Jeff Goldblum kind of comes in, like he starts talking about like being in other movies. Like, <laughs> at one point, he's just talking about being, yeah, like oh yeah, it's really fun working on that movie. Uh, the, the director reminded me a bit of you, as like yeah, he's <laughs> like he kind of like drifts in and out. Uh, Jeff Goldblum, he's kind of great, <laughs> great value for money. <laughs> I, I saw, I, I think I read on IMDb somewhere that he said he watched the film with subtitles because he likes reading. Which, <laughs> which, like, that's a great very... way to watch a movie and read at the same time. He's a genius, this man. <laughs> <laughs> He is, he is the poster boy of multitasking. He's on uh, Letterboxd and Goodreads at the same time. He's getting them stats up on both. <laughs> I, I think I'm still on a bit of like a, a gold bloom high at the point of recording this. I saw like the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park at the cinema not too long ago. And I think still one of my favorite scenes of any movie, which is one that you know the director, Steven Spielberg, said, don't do that. We don't have time to reshoot when he just did the gold bloom laugh on the helicopter. <laughs> and every time I hear it, I'm like, I know, I know you shouldn't have done that. You, you cheeky little gold bloom, you. And yet here we are. Well, uh, it's, it's like, uh, God, who is it? Who's the actor who always says shit in the movies that he's in? Zaya uh, Whitlock. Yes, exactly. It's just like I feel like, <laughs> like if you're gonna hire him, you gotta let him do his thing. <laughs> Some people you've got to let them get their shit in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's what we come for, and obviously, sort of rounding off the, um, the the museum scene, just the kind of like the jarring moment of Goldblum getting those fingers just chopped right off. I'm always like, God damn! And then just 
Jopling just stone cold walks out into the cold streets on snow, shoes off, like this guy. And I'm going to say, I think this guy fucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely he fucks yeah he's had he, he's had all three of those sisters do you know what I mean he's had all three of the uh... <laughs> he, he, Brody, he, don't know about it. supreme confidence and he seems very sure of himself and i think yeah he, he I'm, I'm genuinely shocked by how many of my female friends it's the steve buscemi thing where it's like women are very very drawn to this man who at a glance looks maybe very strange, not necessarily in an off-putting way, but maybe in an unsettling way. But nonetheless, women are extremely drawn to him. It's a curious phenomenon. I don't know what's going on there. It's the rumors. It's the, 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 they heard about the cock double on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, people say size doesn't matter. Like the lion, come on. <laughs> yeah. Defoe, Defoe did wonders for one side of that argument. And that's our obligatory Defoe's cock mention of the episode <laughs> bingo well. cards ladies and gentlemen <laughs> spider-man defoe's cock we're coming for a straight diagonal line baby but i i think that's a phenomenon i am more than willing to explore as this podcast goes on as well and then i think watch that was kind of like you know i don't want to necessarily throw a cat out of the window anytime soon but maybe maybe i get into motorbikes now and i just start like just motor hogging it around he makes it look very cool he also has extremely cool glasses kind of like steampunk almost glasses that is those shots like again it kind of talks to the like you don't care about the artifice of this movie those shots of him kind of like face on riding the motorbike are just so cool like, I believe those are done with the rear projection that they get the wind machine in front of him and they get the background behind him and that's uh yeah i, I love the look of those I love there's there's a behind this there's some but yeah you'll probably find it online behind the scenes footage of when he gets yeeted off of that cliff at the end uh, of how they filmed like him falling which was Roman Coppola said what we can do is we can get a, an exercise ball like painted green like and then green screen it and kind of like get Willem Dafoe on top of it, kind of writhing around. And it kind of like created this like sense of falling because he's like kind of like got the got the exercise ball under him. And it's just hilarious to see Willem Dafoe like being like, all right, guess this is today's work. It's like kind of like working out the core. He's like, I've, I've done the vinyasa yoga. Now it's time for a bit of, I've done the ashtanga. Now it's time for a, work the core with the exercise ball. Oh man, I want to see that footage. <laughs> you know we, we've got a boy with apple i want to foe on ball <laughs> i would love that i would love to have that hanging in my living room yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would even have it in a crass like moving frame i would have a gif if i could have a gif i would have willem defoe on that ball just kind of driving <laughs> around in my living room <laughs> I, I think we are obligated to bring more defoe gifts to the world to be fair the world needs them. <laughs> I think at this point, and from a social media perspective, I think we've used all six of them quite exhaustively. So yeah. that is our mental note to sell, is that we will bring the world more Defoe gifts as well. Um, yeah. that, <laughs> that is our season two vow, the sexy season, the gift season. Stick your stick your smile man gif up your ass. Stick your stick your Jesus Christ giving you a cheers. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have exercise ball, uh, Defoe, please. I kind of wanted like in a kind of broad thing on 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 the movie. Are there any scenes, Charles, that like you particularly wanted to dive into? Because obviously there's like yeah, there's some really 
fun sequences and great scenes. Yeah, yeah. We had a, so we talked a little bit about the chase, which I enjoy a lot. But uh, one of the best sight gags in the movie is at the reading of the will, where it is revealed that uh, Madame has left the you know key MacGuffin painting to Raphien. And we get the series of punchings where Raphien punches out... <laughs> Who punches who out first? I forget. Because it ends with Willem Dafoe punching out Zero, because Zero punches out Dimitri, who has punched out Gustav. Is that how it goes? Yeah. D- yeah. Dimitri rocks up because uh, Gustav has been left boy with apple, which, as yet, is the MacGuffin painting that everyone wants. It's basically the painting of this world. Dimitri, in no uncertain terms, drops a hard F-bomb on... That's right. Uh, Gustav is like, you, you better not have slept with my mother, calls him like an F word. And then she said, and then he's like, well, I can't be that if, if I've slept with your mother. He's like, well, you're bisexual. I was like, yeah, you got him. Nice one, Dimitri. Good, good cover. Good cover. So I think Gustav punches Dimitri's... Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's when uh, Gustav says that I absolutely slept with your mother and then Dimitri socks him right in the face yeah. and then Zero socks Dimitri <laughs> and then yeah, 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 yeah. which is just, it's done in such a crisp one, two, three kind of pacing that it's just, you know, it's, it's a great little pearl of physical comedy. I love that uh, that that moment. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that brings me on to the point of like, what is like amazing about this film is like how meticulous everything is and like, zero there tony revelori is like was it was an open casting call and you would have thought like with like where's anderson who is so meticulous to just like leave it kind of open to relative chance in that thing of like who is going to come through the door on this and like tony revelori is absolutely phenomenal in this like it's kind of like Hmm. since it's like it's uh, like unfortunately i think i've only really seen him in like the mcu and he, he was amazing in dope but apart from that, it's like, oh, like, give us more, give us more Tony Rivalori in these kind of like ju- juicier roles because this is, this, this is, this, yeah, this is amazing. And the stuff between him and Ralph Fiennes is, is amazing. Like, I love that. Well, yeah, I really, I really appreciate that scene when they break out of prison and he's there and like uh, Gustav H kind of like dresses him down for for getting the um, oh, what is it, uh, lead panache. I like, I like saying that lead panache. Like, where's my lead panache? Zero. And um, <laughs> he he like, and that kind of like, I don't. Know, it almost feels like an apology from Wes Anderson of like addressing the like why why so white Wes like criticism he gets of like it's like that moment where yeah he says he, he's well uh, Gustav is racist to him, basically like, why why are you here if you're going to be so so kind of like insubordinate and not not follow the rules and then like it's kind of like within this kind of crime caper you just get this like moment of tenderness and sweetness where he's like well i'm here because my father was killed like my family had to had mm-hmm. to get out of um the country we're from and like you get that like just amazing turnaround from from gustav where he's like oh i take back everything i said like i'm i i i, I am <laughs> I, i'm so sorry and it's like it's just like yeah that that's an amazing moment like all of the all the stuff of agatha like is it's great saoirse ronan and this and like to to bring it back to color that that there's that shot of saoirse ronan when there's like the kind of like twinkling lights around her everything's out of focus apart from her face and it's like what a kind of 
what a beautiful shot. Like, you, you see her as adoringly as Zero sees her. Yeah. It's a really yeah. beautiful thing. It's like, God, it's fantastic. Yeah, there are just so many little moments of shared humanity between Zero and, and Gustav, especially when uh, they get picked up by Bill Murray and they go through the little song and dance of him offering payment and him refusing to take it. Yeah. It's like, you know he's not going to take it, but we have to offer it so that we have done good manners, which is really <laughs> the currency of this world, is this politeness and propriety and having good manners. And the fact that even, you know, as they're in this really dire situation, they're running around and they basically have nothing. They offer something just so that he can demure and refuse it. It's really nice. And you get those kind of, like, I, I love that Zero kind of punctures his kind of, like, ego almost is the moment where they're on the train after that kind of like that amazing shot of them both on the kind of bunks in the the, the third class carriage and he's like i think he says something like well it, it depends like like he's a cow like gustav's like oh sir jex is a coward and he's like well it, well it all depends and like he kind of again he kind of comes around to it. it's like well yeah i guess I guess I guess it does depend, doesn't it? Like and like it's it's this great and it, it kind of ties into that Wes Anderson thing, which is like what happened between you and your dad, Wes? Like because like <laughs> all of these films like have this big like daddy issue thing, and this like the and this is like yeah, it's it's found family, right? It's like Gustav and Zero. It's like this yeah. surrogate dad looking after him, and it's like there's that moment where he's showing like he's kind of interviewing agatha and he's like getting getting sour about it and it's almost like you get that moody teenager moment and it's like that thing as a parent where you're like i've you think i'm being a dick right now but i am i i i am trying to do what is best for you do you know what i mean it's like when my son feels like he needs a an ice cream at bedtime it's like we can't do this, buddy. And it's like, you are the worst dad in the world. It's like, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm talking about, you know, wanting to connect with like these Wes Anderson films. And this is another, this is me being Anderson ignorant. And again, I hold my hands up and say the daddy issues. I've got them. Is this like a whole thing? Is this like a Wes Anderson thing as well? There's just like an online community of people trying to understand more about Wes versus anti animals. Now it's anti dads as well. Uh, I, you know, I was part of a series, I believe, around Father's Day last year or a couple of years ago, where we talked about different, uh, some friends of mine all wrote essays about different filmmakers with recurring father stuff in their cinema. And Wes is a really big one. And I think there is not too much known about his family background at present. Uh, but I mean, one would, you know, rationally assume that there's uh, something going on, something rattling around in that closet. That or you just like... Mm. It did. It did wonders for Steven Spielberg. I guess I'll I'll jump on that daddy issue train. <laughs> so I should have been a director, is what I'm hearing here. <laughs> the Defoe daddy directs the triple D baby. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what it could have been. I think that in terms of I guess I guess um, thematic notions on the characters as well. I suppose there's one thing that I sort of picked up is almost kind of and i suppose this kind of works in a sense with the different timelines as well and going sort of back and back and back and back there's almost this kind of longing for nostalgia almost in a way it's kind of like um i found that gustav was it represented this previous time um and obviously with the film being and there's the backdrop of you know war and fascism as well it's kind of like these are how things sort of were once upon a time and he's kind of the last bastion of this pre-war sort of delightful european time and a time um, of civility. yeah 
a time of civility and there's that sort of line that i, I think it's um older zero says oh no i think it, i think it might be gustav actually you know, no it is gustav when he says there's a, the faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse and, and i will say that i think gustav has some of the best lines and it's very likely i think as, as we're saying here where's anderson coming through with a lot of his i guess reflections on maybe how he viewed the world at the time and how things have changed and how things once were i think certainly what i'm, what I'm picking up as someone who wants to like wes anderson a lot more than he currently does is there's always layers to this man there's always discussion and i mean you know to throw a kind of broad question out here would would there be i suppose to start with yourself charles like any sort of deeper meaning in this that you found that you thought you know i for me like this is what this film is 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 really getting at this is what it's really about I don't think that it can really be boiled down to one definitive statement like that, because I do think it operates on a lot of levels. If you want to look at it as a sort of human drama, it is about these two very lonely personalities finding solace in one another, which I think is a really beautiful recurring theme in Wes's work. I think if you want to look at it politically, he's talking about this time in European history, about the rise of fascism, about the decline of really, you know, true European decadence into a kind of more drab modernism. Uh, And then if you want to look at what this might mean to him as an artist, where I think it is very easy to project him onto his work because his sort of values and aesthetic preoccupations are all, you know, very much a matter of public knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's sort of him, I think, always sweating that, the way he wants to make films, which is very artisanal, very detail-oriented, very analog, that these are going to be flushed out by people who want things done in an uglier, faster way. So those, I guess those are the three mm-hmm. levels that I that I tend to read this one on. Three levels of Anderson. And there's me just going like, isn't pink and blue some blue a nice combination of colors? <laughs> well, I mean, that I is also an excellent reading. That's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> because I am, if it's not clear now, listeners... A silly, silly goose. Um, I mean, I guess like for yourself, Petros, was there one meaning? Was there lots for you as well? You know, what was what was your sort of takeaways on on, on all sort of the layers of this one? Well, yeah, like it's hard to follow Charles as he put like he kind of boiled all three kind of things you could look at this. All right, I, I, I took a lot of oxygen on that no, one. No, it's, it's all right. And like, <laughs> nice one, Charles. Petros is crying now. <laughs> Through through watching this film through the kind of like yeah like w- when you kind of get into your third fourth fifth rewatch of a movie you go like every movie is about movie making do you know what I mean even even like Wes Anderson's work you look at Life Aquatic Steve Zoo it's like it is like that St- Wes Anderson is Steve and he's got this crew around him and th- 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 this movie and I think yeah there's kind of echoed the points I made earlier is there is stuff in this and like it's almost like the adrian Brody's family are, are like he's saying like they're like modern audiences where they're like even if it is a little bit of a snarky comment from wes it's like that thing of they don't even notice the boy with apple is gone until like later on in the plot and it's like you don't notice like the the good stuff the good times of like movie and it is a pertinent point today where like we kind of feel like every week we're on the the hype on or the kind of chatter on social media is like the death of cinema is coming do you know what I mean and it's like this feels like what 
a lot of filmmakers have been doing recently, like kind of making that that definitive statement on like this is a a turning point where it's like there was an old way of making films and there is an, uh, a new way of making films. Like you look at directors like Damien Chazelle with like Babylon. It's like I'm gonna get this out of the gate whilst I fucking still can. And like Bo is afraid. It's like it's three hours because I got all these ideas and there's there might like the way things are going. We might we might not be out of a chance to make this and like kind of Wes Anderson almost predated all of those by doing like doing a film that is saying i like this aesthetic i like to make movies in this way when it can be practical it will be practical and like do you know what i mean like I, I will be meticulous with it and it's like i can make a film on 25 million dollars that looks better than films that are pumped out onto netflix that like you mm. hear these extortionate like do you know what i mean like I don't know, red notice for instance do you know what i mean it's like oh they just got three actors in front of green screen and went do something that vaguely looks like acting do you know what I mean it, like, <laughs> do, 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 explain what's going on to us and like w- with this it's like you it's almost like the you can look at it in that way of what is the 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 mechanics of movie making are just as exciting as the kind of the plot and the thematic elements of this film so i think yeah, I, I, I took away from this this rewatch, and I'm sure in subsequent rewatches I will, and future rewatches I've I've taken away and will take away di- different things. But I mm-hmm. I look at this as yeah, it, it feels like a personal film to Wes, and it's it's kind of interesting to see who is the director surrogate in any movie, and in this it does feel like Gustav in the way that like as much as Wes kind of says like I think mannerisms and turns of phrase are stolen from a friend of his it's like Wes Anderson looks like somebody who doesn't look out of place in like a bygone era and it's like Gustav is that guy throughout this film and it's it all kind of yeah it it kind of says like movies used to be this way and you've kind of you've ruined it you you couldn't even see a boy with apple if you if if you tried guys like do you know what i mean you 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 won't appreciate it you just kind of want the and even to the point of the painting that it's it's swapped with right it's like that that feels pointed in the fact that it is this kind of almost grotesque image of like 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 uh, yeah like masturbation and stuff like that and it's like mm-hmm. oh, all you guys are making this self-masturbatory cinema and it's like have, have yeah have have some lead panache on your movies do you know what i mean like they just they just, just feed us gray slop yeah i think i think that's what we're saying is a uh, more more lead panache on movies more mendels please more mendels more lead panache and you know if you want to throw a painting was that and that, that's a quick side side thought was the painting they replaced it with was that literally called like two lesbians masturbating or did I make that up? I'm sure I saw that somewhere. <laughs> I uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not sure. So I went to a Wes Anson themed club night once in Brighton. Because <laughs> if, if there's anywhere in the UK, of course, you can it was go to have a Wes Anderson themed club night. It is brighton uh and they some but like they encourage everybody to come in fancy dress uh me and my girlfriend at the time came in the ill-advised richie and margot tenenbaum which kind of like adds to the kind of incest of that film that we're a couple and we're like yeah let's go let's go sister and brother or fucking and somebody actually came as that painting and nice. it was just like you've won, you've won like and it was amazing to see like there was i think somebody who won somebody came as zero and it was just like 
yeah like attention to detail the night was like impeccable to the fact that like the it's a wall-to-wall kind of wes anderson soundtrack music being played there's like yeah and the you kind of looked around it's like well that guy is gustav h just like me with like a couple of sweatbands and like a a brown suit i look like a fucking schmuck do you know what i mean like <laughs> i got the bald head so i'm i'm post-suicide <laughs> attempt uh <laughs> richard tenenbaum as well <laughs> it's the taking part that counts man. yeah exactly exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not just i'm not just any richard tenenbaum I've got, I've got the bandages on my wrist okay guys i'm a, i'm the i'm the edgy one <laughs> Yeah, I mean, following on from both your points, I wish I was smart enough to have any articulate (laughs) points, but I am brain damaged. But I think certainly what I think I sort of recognised, if nothing else, is maybe in a different life, if if 1930s Daryl existed, maybe I'd be a hotel concierge. I think 1930s Daryl would be very happy. Maybe not so much in the the, the backdrop of war, but just just fucking unsucking. (laughs) You know, <laughs> just living. Yeah, those, those tasty steaks. Give me those. Give me those. Give me those cheap cuts. TLFS, baby, is what I'd get tattooed onto my knuckles. Th- thriving, living, fucking sucking. <laughs> that, that's what the default days are about. Oh God, season two, baby. Here we are. But certainly on that thorough low point for which I thoroughly apologize maybe I think it's time to start bringing things to sort of a close on this episode but of course we've got three main bits of uh, wrapping up that we need to get to as well so the first is very De- very Defoe centric and we ask Willem Defoe as JG Jopling does he do deface so charles for yourself do we get a deface in the grand budapest i believe we get a sort of modified slant on deface where it is not as you know sort of pop out explosive as as deface usually is but it is a more reserved and yet unmistakably defovian version of deface how about that (laughs) (laughs) i know that term i've heard that before so that is that is one deface there from uh, a deface yes the many defaces of willem the many defaces of willem defoe petros deface yay or nay i i think so the, just the fact we get those kind of like hero shots of him and like he gets to kind of i think it's that one as he comes out of the museum and you see that like the underbite in its kind of full full kind of glory and it's like yeah, he's doing he's he's doing something that isn't like Jermaine. You know I he's he, he's he's portraying a a world of emotions and kind of mm-hmm. you, you can kind of pinpoint who that guy is. So I think the fact he can convey who that guy is just through the the manner of his face is like yeah, that's that's a deface to me, baby. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a three for three on the faces for me. You know, obviously we haven't yet seen every single Defoe movie, but I think as you say, you just get that shot of him before he even says a word, and it's so distinct. It's this, uh, as I, I keep using the description, like almost orcish. It's nos defatu, defosferatu, however you want to term it. So even if it's maybe not the most gurningy, grinningy of the faces, it is still distinctly Defoe. So I think I've got to give it a the face there as well. One of our new questions in the wrap-up for season two is BDE. Does the character of JG Jopling have BDE? That is big dick defoe energy. Charles, 
what are you saying on the BDE for JG Jopling? 100% yes, absolutely. To <laughs> me, no real question there. That is all but textual. Uh, he is... <laughs> Seems very sexually assured. Yeah, <laughs> I'm almost sorry for wasting your time with such a question. No, no, no. I think it, it deserves to be said. <laughs> you know, we, we've got to ask the questions on the phone that everyone else is too scared to ask. Yeah, Petros BDE. Are we, well, what are we seeing? I think a man who has got like a leather, like can wear a leather jacket with so much kind of confidence, and like mm-hmm. not just any leather jacket, that like the the detail on his where he has that like compartment where he opens it and he's kind of got his like trinkets and things he needs like he's got his like bottle of booze it's like that's that's some real that's some real bde energy like the, the, well yeah some real bde the the, the the i think the only thing kind of like countering that could go against him is throwing a cat out of a window that feels like some <laughs> energy to me do you know what I mean? like come like, yeah. on there's a cat it's a cat, like, you know I mean? like that's, that's small dick energy. But I think, I think in the character, it's like I'm, I'm going to show you, like, do you know what I mean? I'm fucking up pussies left, right, and center. So, <laughs> more ways than one. In more ways than one. I'm so sorry. Don't you dare ever apologize. <laughs> we ain't doing the YouTube apology till season four. Um, <laughs> the, the, the iPhone notes. <laughs> The iPhone yeah. notes on social media. <laughs> iPhone notes. I will do better. We will listen. That's season four. Chat GPT written apology. <laughs> We're looking at you, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. <laughs> I know the very poor taste character reference is coming, but I think it's. I think it's got to be BDE for me as well. Again, from 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 the head to the toe, from top to bottom, to be so menacing in leather. And you know, I also have a cat, so you know, I've I've gone a anti BDE for the cat death, but it was a huge move to make a statement. And he also cut a woman's head off and put it in nicely presented in a wicker basket. So, and he kept Goldblum's fingers. Um, for what purpose, <laughs> we will never know. And I think I mean, can't state this enough: the bastard can ski. That yeah. son of a that son of a bitch can ski. Very very skilled skier. <laughs> Anyone with Winter Olympic panache in their repertoire, huge BD. I've as far got, as I I've got a question, Daryl. That I'm sorry, Charles, for this. Well, if, you, if, if you've seen the film New Rose Hotel, this feels like a question that needs to be asked on this podcast. Which is the better yeeting that we have seen in this in, in these films? Is it is it Oh, uh, Christopher Walken yeeting himself off of, <laughs> in, in a mole, or is it is it Willem Dafoe getting yeeted off of that uh, cliff face at the end of this movie? Which is the more satisfying yeet? To yote or be yoten? That is the question. Oh man, I, I mean, I think for pure comedic value, personally, I think it's got to be. I think it's got to be Nero's Hotel because that still that's one of the, the greatest things I have ever seen committed to cinema. Would I want to stay at either hotel? Like is the question I ask. Oh, Depends yeah. on what era we're looking at here. <laughs> Get that on the stats of this show. Is like if if hotel is in the title, is someone getting yeeted? The, this is the things we're finding out on getting to for you. If you've got hotel in the title, are you getting yeeted? Does somebody get yeeted in? Hotel California? Who knows? We'll find out. It's a lovely place. That's all I know. But the final question, some may say the most important question, we give our final rating 
on the movie. And of course, we don't just give it a thumbs up. We don't just give it a thumbs down. We, on point, we ask, does this movie get a defriend or a defoe? Charles Bromesco, defriend or defoe? I would say that <clears throat> while this movie is certainly my defriend, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of this film. I love it so dearly and I could watch it, I think, a potentially infinite number of times. The character of J.G. Joplin is most assuredly Defoe. Defriend on the movie, Defoe on Joplin, but the energy, it's a capital D. So it's its its a swings and roundabouts affair when you bring the Defoe factor into it, as we are wont to do. <laughs> uh, Petros, same question, Defriend or Defoe? It's a Defriend for me. I, I, I really, I kind of, I always forget how much I love this film until I watch it again. Like, I kind of, I don't know, it's, it's hard sometimes to not get lost in that. Like any, any time a new Wes Anderson film comes out, you kind of see the swaths of people being like, oh, is Wes Anderson doing Wes Anderson again? And like, like that's a, a minus point somehow. Do you know what I mean? It's like... You got one guy like this. People say that <laughs> we, we get so many of these movies. He makes like one movie every four years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's now because we've got like this, like with the COVID backup, we kind of like, they, they all seem kind of compressed, like in the space of us gearing up for like season one and season two, it's like there will be a new Wes Anderson project at least released, like whilst those seasons are being aired. <laughs> but like, apart from that, yeah, it's like he's the only guy doing what he does and it's like i don't know you kind of look at it in hitchcock did hitchcock like people praise him for it do you know what i mean Bri- like brian de palma does hitchcock but people praise him for it it's like <laughs> and, and it's like pe- people do what they they do and it's like the thing of i don't know and it's the, the criticisms wes gets is like w- would you want him telling other stories than what he's telling do you know what i mean yeah and like it's always i always think him like and sophia coppola kind of come under fire sometimes of like people being like they're only telling stories about these certain people and it's like do you want wes anderson and sophia coppola making films about like inner city la and the plight of like those people no we do not I've never understood the impulse to tell an artist what they should or should not be making yes. movies about. I feel like they're probably the best judge of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And it's like hotel concierges in these kind of pristine locations is what Wes Anderson is is, is suited to. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of a love letter to the New York Times with the French Dispatch is what Wes yeah. Anderson should be doing. Not Not like kind of, we don't want Wes Anderson's boys in the hood. I <laughs> <laughs> I've put that out there. AI is gonna is 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 gonna pump that back to us, and I'm gonna feel sick to my. It'll stomach. be a matter of time. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's the defriend for me. So that is two defriends. I mean, for myself, I've been going back and forth on this um, about where I stand. I don't know. We don't offer a sliding scale here. We we, we it's a very binary sort of defriend or foe. But it's kind of like, although I don't love. Wes Anderson and for me I, I, I still think there's just something about I can't quite connect with an, with Wes Anderson's film and not for a lack of trying because I've always thought like with my sensibilities and my sense of humour Wes Anderson by all accounts should be someone who I absolutely worship the ground he stands on um, I don't however and I think in part with having this discussion today as well I certainly believe that 
and please forgive me if this sounds pretentious as fuck, but I think the world needs a Wes Anderson. I think yeah. Wes, Wes Anderson's need to be in the world. And although I didn't love the Grand Budapest Hotel, I would be lying if I said that I didn't enjoy it. Like I enjoyed the artistry of it, the shots, the colours. I thought all the acting was great. I would be lying through my teeth if I didn't say that there were parts of it that made me laugh out loud. And I cannot undercut the value of my dog being calm for at least an hour to watch the colours. <laughs> um, I can't act like that didn't happen. It's huge, yeah. That is massive in my life. I cannot understate that, listener. That is so big um, in my life. So, with that said, even though my feelings are mixed, and there are definitely some Wes Anderson films that I don't enjoy, Asteroid City can get fucked, I am going to give the Grand Budapest Hotel a friend. Yes. Um, so I, I, I am on the on the, on the on the scales on the scales. It's it just tips into the front for me. I think it deserves it just on the fact for a film that is set in the nineteen thirties has two uses of the phrase "candy ass." <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You, you got to show these people that you're not a candy ass if you want to make it in our fucking podcast world, baby. But I think so, with that said, we close the doors and we check out of the Grand Budapest Hotel with three de friends and all the joys and memories and paintings we made along the way. Um, and of course, it's left for us to say, Charles Bramaskia, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on board. The Defoe Promotion Trip. Yeah. For the listeners, where can we find you on the interwebs, the socials, all that good jazz? Yeah, I, uh, I'm a freelance writer, and so I go wherever the breeze may take me, but you can find all of my work uh, really organized uh, at my Twitter account, which is, uh, you can find it with my name, Charles Pomasco. The username is at Into the Crevasse, which is uh, from uh, the television show 30 Rock. You can find all my work there. Uh, I hope you like reading it. And the uh, the new book, by the way, one more time, Colors of Film, The Story of Cinnamon, 50 Palettes. Very important. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I I've got a copy and I absolutely love like farming for it. It's kind of like it's it, it's made some homework for me as well. I feel like I've got to like like go through and watch like all the movies that you've mentioned. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear it. Genuinely, get Petros and the blurb in the second printing. That's all I'm saying. There's a there's a Paul <laughs> quote right there. <laughs> He's gone. Me homework. Blood. I said it with glee. I didn't it's say it. In it homework enriches you. I love working at home. <laughs> genuinely delightful to see the joy in Petros's face there uh, but all the links in the description as per usual so we wrap up this week's episode and it is left for us to say I've been Daryl I've been Petros I've been Charles and we've been getting Defoe you and there we are we got checked out of the Grand Budapest Hotel and like we said first disagreement of the uh of the season there so um you said that in the intro daryl but i i believe we all agreed on the film if i if i check the the uber document we we all gave this film a friend if i if i am if i am correct but yeah it's um one of those where i think you know and i will say you know hold my hands up and say i think the conversation won me over um is what happens i was ready to go in there with like a steaming hot defoe 
you know, disagreement in the terms of, I think I was in the presence of two, you know, Wes Landerson Vandersons, I think, as we've turned in the episode there. So yeah. a disagreement about the director, not so much the film, you know, I'll, I'll give, give the film its praises, yeah. but Wes Anderson, yeah. you've got to do a little bit better than that to win this boy over. Well, it's, it's, yeah, else. It's, you're in a difficult position because you're a couple of like Wes pilled boys. Do you know what I mean? You're a couple of you're a couple of Wesies, couple of a couple of wetty Wesies, as, 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 as Wes Anderson fans like to call ourselves, wet Anderson fans. Yes, God, we sounds, are here. Sounds like you're all just making that up, you insane lunatics. <laughs> we are all in kind of like perfectly framed shots. We're kind of we're there with our red beanies. We're we're out in, in forces, and we're oh we'll, we'll we'll attack you, but we'll make it stylish, baby. That's how we roll. Well, as long as it's stylish, can't uh, can't argue with that. But um, what we can absolutely agree with is our thanks for you, dear listener, for checking out the episode, coming on this journey with us on the Defoe Commotion train as we get to know Willem Defoe. So again, thank you very much for listening. And, you know, I think if you've uh, listened to our season one wrap-up a little while ago, you'll know all the goodness that we've got coming up this season. And... Uh, Petros, who do we have coming up for episode three? Episode three, we are joined by Chris Johnston of the Easy Riders Raging podcast to talk about the 1981-1984, let's call the whole thing off, uh, film (laughs) The Loveless, directed by Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery, which sees Willow Foe riding a motorbike in leather very similar to this film we struck on the first season there's a lot of literary adaptations a lot of leather this season season two the sexy season i think so (laughs) we've got a little leather link in there i didn't even clock that that's exciting yeah motorbikes as well both both kind of got got a similar shot of uh, of of willem (laughs) defoe kind of front on riding a motorbike so yes please so yeah join us next week as we talk to chris about all things the loveless and obviously we can't wrap up this episode without as per usual thanking our editor matt uh, you know, much like Zero in the film, he is the bellboy of this podcast, the backbone of this institution that keeps the place running, keeping an eye on the guests, the wants, the needs, and making sure this doesn't all come down crumbling upon us. So thank you again, Matt, for your dedication to the hotel that is Defoe. Oh, without Matt, we are we are in the clink. He is providing us with the tools in the Mendel's pastry to make an escape out into the world. Without without Matt, we would be recording this and it would be going nowhere. We'd be in a prison of our own making. So Matt, our eternal gratitude. He welcomes us to the Hotel Caledophonia every single <laughs> week. Uh, and we said it at the top. We'll say it at the bottom as well. Um, if you... In case you just forgot, we haven't got around to it yet. We've got a lot of socials you can find us on at Petros. If you don't bloody mind, where can they find us? Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, all at DefoeUPod. Or you can drop us an email at DefoeUPod at gmail.com. And if you want to be a friend of the show, never a Defoe and leave us a five-star rating on your podcast platform of choice. So if that is Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now, rate, review, subscribe, all of that goodness. Lovely stuff. So again, thank you for listening. 
we'll see you next week as we continue to cover all the highs, all the lows, and all things Willem Dafoe right here on Getting Dafoe You. So until then, until then, bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. Getting to know you, we'll start with Heaven's Gate. And we'll watch them all till the present day.